Our Girly Evolution is a bi-weekly, bilingual podcast sharing stories of women around the world, navigating women's new frontier, the Me Too millennium. Join Carolina Rocchio and me, Our Girly, as we interview women from different walks of life, as well as different cultures, to explore the inspirations, issues, and irritations women across the globe share. Our girly revolution focuses on how women may have been born to different houses, but we are sisters in the end. Kristen Statham is a walking revolution. A graduate of Ohio's Bowling Green, she left her Midwestern roots after college to move to Washington, D.C. to work in federal finance. This work did not stop Kristen from traveling to every continent before the age of 40. However, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis also under the age of 40, cast a shadow on her traveling ways. Kristen, however, has always had an altruistic spirit. Last year, despite her illness, she co-founded 2000 Libros, whose mission is to provide books to immigrant children who separated from their families and are placed in centers around the US. She is also using philanthropic nature this year to help raise funds for the disease she is all too familiar with, MS in the Challenge Walk MS on September 6th, 7th, and 8th. We are so honored to have Kristen with us today on Our Girly Revolution. Hi, Kristen, how are you? I'm doing well, how about yourself? Good, good. So tell us a little bit about your travels. You, you've gone to every continent. I have, I've been to all seven continents and I, I was trying to remember today, I think I've been to like 67 countries maybe. Wow. Uh, of course, that number kind of changes depending on where the lines are drawn on any given map on any given day, but somewhere in the 60s at least. Yeah, I started, my family was, my extended family's big on travel, and my mom was an exchange student, my sister was an exchange student, my brother was in the Peace Corps, but I have never lived abroad. And I feel like I'm making up for it one trip at a time. What, what inspired you to go see all, all, all of the continents? I don't think that I ever had a plan to go see all of the continents. It's just when I got to six, I thought I might as well go see number seven. was inspired by uh, different things, uh, trips with friends. I first went to Europe with my mom. I think we went to England because we were both living in Colorado, and there was a, a flight route that opened up from Denver to London direct. So we flew to London, and she had a friend who lived in Oxford, and when I moved to D.C., I had a friend whose brother had recently moved to Australia, and I think she asked everyone in our company if anyone wanted to go with her. I'd known her about a week, and I said, sure. And then <laughs> later, we flew to Australia. And South America, my brother was in the Peace Corps in South America, and then he lived in Argentina. So I visited South America and Asia. I think I just wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> but once you get to number six, like I said, you want to cross one more off that list. Yeah. So you've even been to Antarctica. I have. Um, I want to say it was about nine years ago. I went to Antarctica over Christmas, which is, or over huh. the December solstice and Christmas, which is the height of summer in Antarctica. And I went down to Ushuaia, Argentina, the southernmost city in the continent, and hopped on an icebreaker. And we traveled two days across the Drake Passage and spent uh, about a week, I think, uh, just boating around the Antarctic Peninsula and inside the Antarctic Circle, and then two days back across the Drake Passage, 
which if you're if you've never been there and you don't know a lot about oceanography it's considered the worst passage in the world oh um two out of every three crossings are pretty rough i think and i broke a tooth on the way down but there was nothing i could do because there were no dentists and i was on a boat heading toward antarctica so what would you say has been your favorite place I get asked that question a lot, and I don't know that I have one favorite. My pet answer is turkey. I love turkey. I love Istanbul. I love the people, the food, um, the interesting mesh of cultures with East, East, West, as Asia and uh, uh, Europe actually butt heads and split the country, um, you know, with Asia west of the, or East of the Bosphorus and Europe to the West. Uh, the, the people are friendly and charming and there's less pressure than a lot of other countries in that region to buy things. Um, the food is wonderful for vegetarians. There's also a diverse landscape like Cappadocia with the fairy chimneys and wow. uh, all the history along the Aegean um, with Ephesus and Priyan and Miletus and Didyma and all these ruins that uh, only pale in comparison to like Pompeii and Herculaneum. Wow. A ton to see, a ton of history, great culture. I just want to keep going back. It's a little less of a place I want to visit today, um, but a lot of countries are getting a little more harder to visit. Just uh, governments change, you know, they get looser, they get stricter. But I, I, I think I love every place that I visit. When, when I answer that question, I Turkey's my stock answer, but then I think like, oh, but hiking in Nepal on the Annapurna Loop and there, it's been a day hiking a little bit uphill, a lot of downhill uh, through an old growth rhododendron forest. Wow. With petals underneath and petals overhead and next to a river, a creek river that turned into waterfalls. It was just incredible. Yeah. Swimming with whale sharks on my honeymoon or... Antarctica is just so incredible and pristine and we came back and I swear half the boat was down at the dock watching the boat leave on its next excursion because we weren't ready for the trip to end. Yeah. So what do you think is your, um, has inspired you to become such a charitable, per charitable person? Uh, I think I grew up with an altruistic family. My mom is a church or was a church secretary, not always a secretary, but also in church administration. Um, and it was really big for her and for our family to, to serve others. We would, on Thanksgiving, go and work the hot meal program before we would eat ourselves. Yeah, so there's always volunteering. Baby sat at a domestic violence shelter. And as I've grown older, I've just continued it. Um, I worked full-time through college and took classes, so I'm used to being busy. And when I grew up and had a job that didn't require me to work, four different places, 80 hours a week, just to make enough to get by. Mm -hmm. I thought about what I wanted to do with my free time and doing a service to other, for others is a great way to spend your time without spending any money. So mm -hmm. I do spend money on some of these projects just because there's so much need in the world. Yeah. And I think the more I travel, the more I see, the more I want to make a positive difference in the world. Mm -hmm. and help people who don't necessarily have the same advantages. So tell us about 2000 Libros. This has been your latest project uh, that you started last year that's had tremendous success in getting these books to kids. It's called 2000 Libros. Yeah, so 2000 Libros or Dos Mil Libros in Spanish. Um, 
it started last summer. I was in a, immediately prior to starting this, I was in a 16 week project uh, at work, learning about user experience and how to um, identify what people actually needed, delivering a service to help people answer problems that they actually had instead of telling them what you think they need. I had 16 weeks of extra work and on week 15 we presented, there was a competition, my team won, it was fantastic. That night I got an email from a young journalist in the DC area who wanted to send books to detain migrant youth and she didn't know how to do it. And she hadn't reached out to me, Kristen, she had reached out to DC Books to Prisons and I'm on the board there. I volunteered there for the past 11 years and I know how to, uh, well, I monitor the email box. I ran it past the rest of the board. They were in agreement that we should support this. They didn't really want to take it on and, and or pull anyone away from DC Books to Prisons as a project. Um, but I volunteered my time. I was like, this is something I think I can do. We know how to get books inside facilities that have tight rules, tight regulations. We know how to work with facilities to get books to the people who need them. So I agreed. And I think it was, that was on June 29th. On July 4th, we launched. Wow. Uh, Wow. Yeah. I was in Asheville, North Carolina. There was a protest uh, about the separation of families. And at the time, there were about 2,000 kids perceived to be in the system who had been separated from their parents at the border, uh, which is why we started with 2,000 books. Okay. In very short order, we realized that there were so many more kids within the system. My partner in the project, Elizabeth, uh, had called it a number of shelters which is part of the reason that I agreed to do it. She had done a lot of the legwork to make sure that she could find shelters that were willing to take books. She didn't know how to collect them. She didn't know anything about the nonprofit side of it. She just knew that she wanted to send books. And she thought maybe if we could send a couple hundred, it would be great. We met on July 2nd, I think, <laughs> when I came back from Asheville. And I said, okay, we need to set up social media. I can take care of getting a fiscal sponsor, um, which is a way that nonprofits can operate without getting nonprofit status. So we didn't get through all the rigmarole of setting ourselves up as a nonprofit. We operate under oh. the auspices of another nonprofit. They give us their tax shelter status oh. and everything, all financial donations and all donations actually go through the Washington Peace Center, which is the, the sponsor for DC Books to Prison. Yeah, so I knew how to do things like that. <laughs> and we set up all the social media and talked to everyone we knew. And she'd been working as a journalist um, for a couple of years. And she talked to her contacts. And we were on the local news. We were in magazines. We launched the project. Uh, to, and then she went to grad school. <laughs> and so wow. it was then my boyfriend, now my husband. And I kept going. I'm sitting here in my living room looking at uh, seven boxes of books, I think. Um, and we just shipped out <laughs> a thousand books to shelters within the past three weeks. Wow. The need still exists. And I feel that a lot of people have sent us books because they felt equally helpless in the light of the, the situation with all of this news and all of this negativity and they're children. Mm -hmm. Children need books. Children need to be kids. And these kids are away from their families, from their cultures, from their home, from everyone they've ever known, including their language. So if we can spend, send them a book in Spanish or bilingual Spanish English book that helps them learn a little bit of English, then 
we want to do it. So I yeah. think we've sent 1,500 bilingual magazines and a, a close to 5,000 maybe 4,000 books in Spanish or bilingual. We did, we did get a large donation that was also English books and we contacted all the shelters to see if they had interest in books in English as well. Uh, we're focused mainly on the Spanish books because they're harder to get, but mm -hmm. they were anxious to get any books they could, um, especially as funding for education, legal and recreational services have been cut to all of the shelters. These shelters are wow. at the max. Um, not just, uh, I, I don't know if separation is still happening. I've heard news reports here and there that families are still being separated. Whether or not that's the case, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of unaccompanied minors who show up at the border. Uh -huh. Every year, I want to say the last number I read was some like 51,000 yep. unaccompanied minors had reached the border in about eight months. Wow. And these are 12 to 17 year olds often um, traveling thousands of miles on their own to escape gang violence. Some of them are the victims of sex trafficking. Some have just lost track of their parents in this whole melee of getting to the border. So, and so yeah. my understanding is then they don't, when, that, uh, when those children get here, they're not provided with schooling. Is that correct? So there's a process. When they first reach the border, they're temporarily held in CBP or ICE facilities. I'm not sure which. I believe it's CBP facilities, Customs and Border Protection. Um, and that's supposed to be very short term. And then they go into the Office of Refugee Resettlement under Health and Human Services. And HHS contracts with a number of shelters across the country. And these are where we send the books. We don't send them to CBP facilities because the kids are, aren't supposed to be there. Okay. Um, and they do not, I don't know how long they're staying there. I believe that they're not staying there for longer than a couple of days. At least that's what the, the rule is that they're not supposed to. And federal facilities can't accept donations of books or anything else. But these nonprofit shelters, and most of them are, I believe, nonprofit shelters. Um, there are a few juvenile detention centers, just regular juvenile detention centers that have some of these kids. And the, they're under the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and it is their mission to try to match these kids up with sponsors, whether it's a family member, generally a family member, or for some of the really small children, they'll have fosters take care of them. Mm -hmm. um, they, they don't want to house these children either, but sometimes there's no one to, there, no one steps up to take responsibility for them. So some of these kids are spending the last years of their childhood until they age out in shelters in the U.S. Wow. Without their family, without their language. And like I said, um, recently the funds have been cut for education, legal, and recreational activities. So most of the kids had been getting receiving education, but the shelters are really struggling at this point just because they have no money, no extra money set aside for that. So we're also struggling to find um, educational materials, not just uh, not just books, and books can be educational, but something um, like we're trying to get some books on climate change and clouds. Well, good. I'm glad that you guys are doing what you're doing. Thanks. The more we do, the more we want to do. Unfortunately, yeah. the more we do, the less time we have, but <laughs> I keep trying to work smarter, not harder. Yeah. I hear you. So then tell us about this challenge walk. Um, 
multiple sclerosis that you're doing, that you're yeah. also doing? So the challenge, well, I was speaking of less time. Uh, <laughs> as the summer progresses, I'm spending more time walking um, and less time packing up books. Uh, the Challenge Walk MS is an annual event held. There are challenge walks in various places around the country. They're part of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society's fundraising effort. And there's Bike MS and there's Walk MS. Um, most cities have a Walk MS, which is like a 5K in the spring or early summer in Bike MS. Uh, I don't know how long that ride is. But the challenge walks are fewer and farther between. They are generally either a 30-mile or 50-mile walk um, over the course of two or three days, depending on whether it's a 30 or a 50. And so my husband and I will be walking 50 miles through Cape Cod at the beginning of September, the weekend after Labor Day. It's, my, it's actually my 10th 50 or 60-mile walk for a charity. Before I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I walked in seven breast cancer charity walks, which were 60 miles over the course of three days, generally about 20, 24 miles the first couple of days, and then a slightly shorter, like 16 mile third day. And we would camp in between and just keep walking. Wow. And you pay sponsors, you raise money, and all of that money goes to fund research. It goes to, in the case of um, the breast cancer walk, it goes to Susan G. Komen. In the case of the National Multiple Sclerosis Walk, that all goes to the National Multiple Sclerosis Society to fund research and services for people with multiple sclerosis. So yeah, I need to finish raising $1,500 and get myself to Cape Cod in about a month and a half. Well, cool. Well, I hope that we can help you out with that. Thank so you. you, so part of this, um, that you are also participating in a non-traditional research study on multiple sclerosis. And it's, it's not a, like how people usually perceive um, the phrase research study. So tell us a little bit more about that. What do you? Yeah, I think that when most people think of research study or clinical trial or something like that, they think of med medicine. I'm not testing any medicine. I'm on a disease modifying therapy uh, course of treatment right now. I have medicine, but I um, am fortunate enough to live close to the National Institutes of Health. And I managed to get hooked up with NIH early into my diagnosis, and I participate in a number of studies there. Um, a few of them are case history studies, so they scan my brain, they do medical tests, they do some basic neurological testing. I add numbers and put pegs and holes, and they watch me walk, and then they scan my brain. Um, this, this newest study is just launching um, in the next month or two. It's around the same time as the challenge walk. And I am helping them evaluate, and a, a couple of universities evaluate the repeatability of MRI scans and the reliability of the, the scans done in different locations. So I'll be going to multiple locations in a very short period, having MRIs at the same time, same time of day uh, after a baseline study or baseline scan. And they will uh, compare the images just to see if, if it shows the same sort of results. I'm one of 12 people with multiple sclerosis participating in this. And then there's one healthy individual as well. So I have this amazing superpower of being able to lie really still for a long time in a loud machine. Very loud. Dun, dun, yes. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't bother me and I'm not 
claustrophobic and I figure they're trying to cure my disease. I can do whatever I can to help. I don't have a brain to figure out how to cure it, but I have a brain that's broken and they need those too. Keep having scans. So what would you like to see happen in the next five years with regards to multiple sclerosis research? That I would like to continue to see advancements made. I think about the, the next five years is a little bit longer than I, I mean, a little bit shorter than I've been diagnosed. I was diagnosed six years ago and I think about when I was diagnosed, I was, uh, all the research that I did said that multiple sclerosis is an incurable, progressive, and ultimately debilitating disorder. But in the past six years, that's changed from ultimately debilitating to most likely debilitating. Wow. Which still sounds terrible. But that change is huge. That I mean, is huge. There was a definitive, this will ultimately be debilitating. And now it's not. It's not a given. That's amazing. What, what happened there that caused that change? I, I, there have been so many advancements. I, I don't know if the, there's an earlier diagnosis or not. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I, I feel like more and more I'm hearing about people getting diagnosed, but also I'm at the age at which you hear about people getting diagnosed. The most common age for diagnosis, I believe, is 37, 38, and it's more women than men in their late 30s. Um, and the more I do with the MS Society or the more I do with life, because I talk about everything in my life, um, the more I hear about other people who have mm-hmm. it. But there have been so many advancements in medication. I'm I've been showing visible symptoms of MS since I was 12 or 13, and I wasn't diagnosed until I was 37. And I'm actually glad. (laughs) I'm glad I wasn't diagnosed sooner. It wouldn't have been a good thing. Like, had I been diagnosed sooner, I would have started taking medication sooner. I would not have as much damage. I would not have as many symptoms. I also would not have been hiking in an old growth rhododendron forest in the Himalayas because I would have been scared. Yeah. The medicine that was available when I was 12 or 13, it was uh, interferons and it was linked oh. to depression. And it was more like you would end up with flu-like symptoms. You'd have an infusion. I probably never would have left Ohio. But oh, that's medicine has just changed so much. Even in the past year, I think that they've released a medicine that addresses uh, progressive MS. Um, most people, many people are diagnosed with relapsing and remitting initially. Mm-hmm. Some people are diagnosed with primary progressive, which means it never remits. They never go into remission. They never have good periods. It just keeps getting worse from their time of diagnosis. And most people with relapsing remitting move into secondary progressive. They stop remitting and then it just gets continuously worse. And until this point, there wasn't any medicine to help with progressive MS. Now there's, now there's medicine that helps with that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's huge. Um, huge. And I, and this is all anecdotal. I don't, I'm not a researcher, so I don't know if there's more information about the, uh, that's the disease modifying medication. MS is a funny disease and it's a snowflake disease in that it attacks the neurological system, system, system. I can't talk. <laughs> My immune system attacks my brain and my nerves. And your central nervous system is your central nervous system. It controls everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you feel, everything that you 
are is related to your nervous system. So the symptoms can range. Anything can go wrong because your immune system is attacking the, the coating on your nerves, like the coating on a, a wire. So now you've got exposed wires. So you've got mixed signals and cross signals and you've got false sparks. And so you have random pain and there's not actually anything wrong. Hmm. Except for the fact that there's a hole in that lining and the sim- signal's going to the wrong place. The symptoms can range from fatigue. Most of us have fatigue. Numbness, tingling, vision issues. I, my vision doubles, it blurs. I have trouble talking sometimes. Sometimes I can't form words. Sometimes I stutter. Sometimes I choke. I have insomnia. There's uh, anxiety, panic attacks, which are chemical, not... Mm-hmm. I'm so worried about this disease. It's just I wake up in the middle of the night think I'm, thinking I'm having a heart attack. Um, wow. Loose feeling in my legs, loose feeling in my arms. Sometimes it's like I'm wearing just heavy weights and, you know, walking through quicksand or something, which is mm-hmm. not quick at all. So, yeah, it, it does all of that. And the medicine that we take slows down the progression. So it slows down the damage, but okay. it doesn't necessarily fix any of those problems that we have. Uh-huh. And it doesn't make the myelin grow back. So okay. I think ideally, a very long-winded way to say that in six years, I'd like to see some improvements in regrowing myelin. Because once okay. that that coating is gone, it's gone. There's no way to, to regrow it. So you've got exposed wires for the rest of your life. Even wow. if it stops progressing, those wires are still exposed. I'm a firm believer in neuroplasticity too, which means the brain can kind of rewire itself and use different wires. Mm-hmm. But if they can uh, work on reversing some of the damage, that would be fantastic. Fantastic. Absolutely. Well, that's great that it's gotten, it's gotten better in the past five years. Because I grew up in um, Colorado Springs where there's a high incidence of multiple sclerosis. So I, I knew a lot of people growing up with it. And it was just, it was a sad situation. So I'm, I'm glad to hear this. So. Yeah, I don't have to end up in yeah. a wheelchair. But if I end up in a wheelchair, that's where I end up. Yep, we we'll love you. Yeah. 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 So you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis six years, like you said. What would you say to someone who has had a similar diagnosis? I have had the opportunity to speak with friends, uh, friends from home, friends from high school, friends from college who either are recently diagnosed or they think they have it, but have yet to be diagnosed. Um, And one of the big things that I I think I would say, that I did say to them and would say to anyone else is that you're still the same person you were yesterday. The diagnosis doesn't change you. It actually makes life a little bit better um, because you have an answer. Most people come to a diagnosis of MS after months, if not years, of wondering what exactly is wrong, of going to doctors, of searching for an answer. And yeah, the answer is not great, but once you have an answer, you can start doing something about it. I would probably tell anyone recently diagnosed with anything, as well as anyone not diagnosed with anything, that life is really short. I could die of MS. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I could find out that I'm allergic to some random food I've never tried in my life. I just need to live my life now. We all need to live the life that we have now. Mm-hmm. There's no sense in waiting. Like, be smart, make plans. I bought a condo that's on one level instead of continuing to live in the row house where I kept falling down the stairs. 
I have a walk-in shower now. I kept falling in the bathtub. I made plans. I got a job that was more stable with the federal government. I'd been contracting and I became a federal employee. Um, and not everybody has the opportunity to do something like that, but make smart decisions for your future, but don't live your life in fear of the future. Um, I continue to travel and to volunteer and to start new things and to learn things every day. Like that 16-week program that I did last summer, that was something that I signed myself up for because I wanted to learn how to do things for people who needed them the way they needed them done. So to, to listen better instead of offering a solution that I thought people needed, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not a white savior. (laughs) Even with the books for kids, um, we talk to the shelters and we check in with them. Like what age level do you have? What literacy level do you have? You know, trying to find books for 12 to 17 year olds who have very low literacy levels, but very, very advanced maturity and life experiences and try to find content that's gripping it, but also approachable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just, you know, keep learning, keep growing, keep living. Absolutely. So if someone wants to donate to 2000 Libros or Challenge Walk MS, what are the links that you would refer them to? Oh, so the Challenge Walk MS is on the National MS Society. And I actually don't know the, the link for that. Um, it's Kristen Statham, uh, Challenge Walk MS. Uh, okay. And the Dose Mail Libros, we have an Amazon wish list. Um, we have a wish list of politics and prose. We also have information on the DC Books to Prisons website, which oh, is cool. the easiest way to find all of the links. Like I said, okay. we did this in coordination with DC Books to Prisons. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what that address is. I think it's bookstoprisoners.org. Well, cool. Well, best of luck to you. Thank you very much. For more information on Kristen Statham and the charities she is involved in, please check out the 2000 Libros website at facebook.com 2000 Libros. And to help her in her fight against MS, please check out and donate to the MS Challenge Walk 2019. To hear Kristen's full podcast interview, please check out ourgirlyrevolution.com where women may live in different houses, but we are sisters in the end.